I'll bring greetings from the saints at Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Owensboro, Kentucky. It's uh, a privilege to be among you all whom we pray for so often. It's good to see you all and be and worship, worship the Lord with you all. Uh, if you have a copy of God's Word, uh, please turn with me to Romans 8.28. There's an old hymn written by John Newton that has recently received fresh attention. I'd never heard it before until uh, recently, within the last few years. And this hymn reminds us that God often works in his people in ways that they don't expect. Newton in this hymn asked the Lord that he might grow in faith and love in every grace, that he might more of his salvation know and may more earnestly seek his face. Now this is an honest humble and a very precious prayer, we might expect that God would immediately open the heavens and pour out blessing upon this man to give him a humbler and more earnest walk with Christ. Well, that's not what happened to Newton's great surprise and maybe to ours as well. Newton goes on to say the result of this prayer, I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request. And by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart, and laid me low. I wonder if any of you have had an experience like John Newton described. While sincerely and earnestly praying for a growth in grace, have you been surprised to instead receive a grievous and devastating trial? Maybe in the midst of this, you were tempted to respond as Moses did when he was first sent to Pharaoh to request the release of the Israelites. Moses had promised, God had promised Moses that he would deliver God's people. Yet upon Moses' initial obedience and confrontation of Pharaoh, instead of deliverance, things actually get much worse for the Israelites. And so Moses, surprised at this turn of events, he asked the Lord, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Haven't you promised that you would release them? Yet when I've gone in obedience before Pharaoh and made this bold request, now they have to go gather their own straw. It's worse than it was before. For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Have you been tempted to respond in this way uh, when God brought trials and sufferings into your life? Have you sought the Lord for graces only to feel as though he had given a sword into the hand of your enemies and sins to kill you? Have you been tempted to think that God has given you a stone when you asked him for bread? While this may surprise us and catch us off guard, this is really a gracious gift 
from a loving and kind God. In God's dealings with us, he very often gives the greatest and most sanctifying of graces to his pilgrim people through pain, suffering, and trials. And we must by faith confess in the midst of these testings that all things are for our good. And this is what we read in Romans 8.28, which is our text for this afternoon. If you're there with me, I'm going to read uh, verses 28 to 30 uh, to give us some context for this. Paul says, by the Holy Spirit, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's ask the Lord to bless this time together in his word. Our Father, we confess, even as we've just sung, that whatever you ordain is right. And as we see this glorious promise that you lay before us, we must also confess that whatever you ordain is good. Though not always pleasant, not always what we expect, sometimes painful, sometimes devastating, pushing us beyond our limits, yet it is good. I pray that you would speak in this hour as we open your word together that you would teach us how to praise you even in the darkest times because all that you ordain for us is good. All things work together for good. May you be glorified in this time and may your people be encouraged. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's take a closer look at this uh, comforting passage. Uh, notice first the confidence of the Apostle Paul. Uh, he starts the verse that we're looking at together, verse 28, and we know, and we know. It's, it's no matter of speculation for Paul whether all things work together for your good. Paul knew this to be true. He knew this to be true because he's observed this throughout the scriptures. Uh, consider Joseph, for example, sold by his brothers into slavery, then falsely accused by uh, Potiphar's wife and sent to the worst prison in all of Egypt, Pharaoh's prison. How could such a thing turn out for good? Here, this man who had served God earnestly in any situation he'd been put into, yet finds himself in a very bad situation, in prison for several years. Yet Joseph later testifies that what his brothers meant for evil what got him put ultimately into a pit and then into a dungeon. Ultimately, God meant it for good. And he was raised up uh, to, to care for the nation of Israel during the famine in Canaan to save many people alive. Consider also David, who suffered in the wilderness, the suffering wilderness king, fleeing from Saul. This resulted in some very, very precious psalms that we have 
and that we find great comfort in that speak of David's warm relationship with the Lord. You think of where he says, the Lord became to him like water in a dry place as he flees in the wilderness from Saul. The psalmist also speaks of this in Psalm 119, verse 71, saying that it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. So we see here difficult situations, afflictions, working together in Old Testament saints for their good and for the good of God's people. But Paul also knew this to be true because he'd experienced affliction and suffering very personally himself. And we read about this in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 28, where Paul says he endured imprisonments, countless beatings, and was often near death. He goes on to say, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So Paul knew very well that those things that seemed harmful to him were without fail used by God for his own good and the good of his church. And maybe you remember when he comforts the Philippians by telling them that his first imprisonment, despite appearances, actually served to advance the gospel. And so Paul confidently encourages the church at Rome that all things work together for their good. Notice then that Paul states that all things work together for good. All things. He didn't say a few things. He didn't say most things. He said all things work together for the good of those who love God. This includes good things. This includes bad things. This includes joys and blessings. This includes sorrows and sufferings. All things work together for good. And Thomas Watson said something I think that's very helpful on this point. I, I do not say that of their own nature the worst things are good, for they are a fruit of the curse. But though they are naturally evil, yet the wise overruling hand of God disposing and sanctifying them, they are morally good. God has so tempered them that they all work in a harmonious manner for the good. Afflictions work together for our good. Whether it be illnesses which come upon us or our loved ones. Whether it be pandemics, whether it be natural disasters, whether it be our own deaths or the deaths of loved ones. All these things work together for good. The consequences of sins, the sins of others, work together for our good. Individuals may sin against us. Our children may turn away from us. Our government may mistreat us. 
people we love may betray us. Those who discipled us may fall away from the faith. Yet, all that is intended for evil, God means for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And providential departures work together for our good. When circumstances demand that we move away from people we love, or when people we love move away from us, as I'm sure you've been experiencing lately in these days, all these difficult provinces are, providences are meant by God to work together for our good and, his, and for the good of those who are called according to His purpose. So God turns all calamities, evil, trials, and suffering, He turns them all into good for the believer. There are, are no exceptions to this whatsoever. Paul makes no qualifications to the statement. All things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. But notice that this gracious and wonderful promise is not true of every person. Paul provides two important qualifications to this promise that all things work together for good. And what are they? The first is that all things work together for good for those who love God. William Hendrickson comments on this point. The meaning is this. They and they alone have a right to be comforted by this fact. Only in the case of those who love God is it true that all things work together for good. So it is specifically those who love God for which all things work together for good. So before you find comfort in this promise, you need to ask yourself the question, do I love God? All things cannot work to the good of those who, who do not love God or to those who are not reconciled to God. In fact, all good things work for their harm. If you are not in Christ and if you have not been made a lover of God by conversion to Christ, then all these things will ultimately end in everlasting harm. It's only for those who love God that all things work together for good. And it's only those who love God who will faithfully bear the crosses that he lays upon our backs. But we should consider also that if we love God, it's only because God has loved us first. Meditate upon this glorious truth in the midst of your darkest trials. Despite what you may feel with your senses in the midst of these times, the pain that you feel, the hurt that you feel, the Lord God loves you. He loves you. And we read in Hebrews 12, verses 6 to 7, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Trials and suffering for the believer are not brought on by God for the sake of the punishment of the believer. God is not abandoning us when we suffer. On the contrary, God afflicts believers because he loves us as sons and daughters. His compassion in these times are actually greatly kindled for us. 
Afflictions are medicinal, that they might keep us close to him or that they might bring us back to him. He wants us to find comfort and grace from him in the midst of any of this pain that we experience. And God invites you. This is, this is incredible. He invites you. Are you anxious about anything? Are you suffering anything? Cast your cares upon the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 5. But in addition to this first qualification, Paul provides a second qualification for this wonderful promise. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, in addition to this telling us something about ourselves, this also reminds us of some very important things about God that we need to meditate upon in trials and difficulties. The Lord God is a God who does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115.3 He does according to his will among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. Daniel 4.35 He works all things for the purpose that the earth may be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk 2.14 Yet our God, in accomplishing these purposes, has has delighted to call a people for to accomplish his very purposes. It's been his delight to call a people according to this very purpose. God has called a, a, a people out of sin, out of bondage to sin, and into newness of life, that they might walk with him. The people that God has called according to this purpose, they cannot fail to be brought where God has, has chosen to bring them. They cannot fail. For God, and this is important, for God cannot fail right. in accomplishing his purpose. Right. Now we see this reality playing out in the surrounding context of Romans 8.28. It's really a, a glorious passage uh, that has so much uh, wonderful truth. I think of many, many saints, this would be the chapter they would have read to them on their deathbed uh, for this very reason. But let's consider some of the uh, realities that we see in the surrounding context of this verse. In Romans 8, we learn that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's verse 1. That we are set free from the law of sin and death. Verse 2. And that the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us. Verse 3. We learn that we are sons of God by adoption. That we are the very children of the living God. verses 14 to 16, and that we are heirs with Jesus Christ. Verse 17, we learn that the Holy Spirit of God intercedes for us according to the will of God. Verses 26 to 27, and that Christ Jesus prays for us at the right hand of God. Verse 34, and we also learn that nothing, again, no qualifications, Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, verses 38 to 39. And we learn in uh, verse 30, which we read earlier, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he will also glorify. Those whom God foreknew and predestined, he will surely, without fail, glorify them. Yet despite these precious promises of spiritual and eternal blessings, 
we discover there are still great sufferings that believers have to endure. This, this is tucked right into this glorious passage of, of wonderful things that are true of us, yet we still deal with suffering in this present life. Despite our being children of the living God, we will all experience great pain, suffering, losses, and crosses, each one of us. Yet, we can be sure that none of these things are outside of the plan of God for us. None of these things change the fact that God's children are foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and will be glorified. None of them. God has foreknown and predestined our lives and the details of our lives from start to finish, from beginning to end. All according to his purpose. And if God has called you according to this purpose, he will not abandon you in the midst of any of these trials. As he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6 So consider that God has appointed these trials according to his purpose for you. He is the Lord of your trials. Just as he's the Lord of everything else. He is the Lord of your trials. He's the Lord of your pain. And he means all these things for your good. Is there anything that our God cannot do? No. There's nothing our God cannot do. He does all that he pleases in heaven and on earth. God is all-powerful. He can remove or prevent any trial from afflicting any of us. He could take it away in a moment. Whatever you're experiencing, he can take it away in a moment. That's exactly what he would do if it wasn't for your good, for this to come upon you. Yes. And he knows it. Yes. Is there anything that God doesn't know? No. There is nothing God doesn't know. God is all-knowing. He knows very well, very well the trial that you are experiencing. He knows the pain it is causing you. Our sufferings have not taken God by surprise. They've taken us by surprise, but they have not taken God by surprise. There is no way that, it, that this all-knowing God would allow your trial unless it was working together for your eternal good. God has both full knowledge of our sufferings and he has the power to remove them or prevent them. Yet the Lord God in his infinite wisdom and grace has appointed for us to endure them, specifically them, for our peculiar good. This is uh, really comforting to meditate on in the midst of any trial that we face. That God not only allows them, but they are intended by him for our good. God is no bystander with his hands tied. I wish I could do something about that pain that this person's experiencing, but I, I, I just, I can't. They'll have, to, they'll have to endure it. No, the Lord knows exactly what you're going through. And he's using these things for your good, all of them. The Lord knows your frame. He knows your circumstances. He afflicts you in kindness and he pierces you in mercy. 
But what is God's purpose for the pain that you're experiencing right now? I think at least four reasons can be identified uh, that are both supplied by this passage and elsewhere. And these are the four. First purpose of our pain, to show us the hidden evils of our heart. There are some sins which we don't really discover lurking. We don't know they're there in in the deepest parts of our heart until we are sick and confined to bed. And then we realize how much anger and impatience and selfishness when people are waiting on us and we're stuck in bed and we have so many things we want to do and you feel in your heart something you didn't know was there. The sin that, that lies close in your bosom that has now been exposed because of this trial. Thomas Watson said that afflictions to the godly are medicinal. And this bears repeating. Afflictions to the godly are medicinal. And a sickbed often teaches more than a sermon. Yes. I think this is true. The Lord is gracious to use these means to reveal, reveal to us the depth of our remaining corruption in a way that we may not otherwise ever understand. And so the first purpose of our pain that God shows us the hidden evils of our heart. Second purpose of our pain. To decrease our dependence upon ourselves and others and to increase our dependence upon God alone. Now we see this in the Apostle Paul himself when he's afflicted by the Lord with a thorn in the flesh. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord that he might remove this. But the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The Lord brings trials in our lives in order to increase our dependence upon God alone so that we can realize that we we are weak and he is strong and when we are weak that is when we are strong. That is what afflictions do to us. They make us realize that our strength is in dependence upon our God alone. Not ourselves, not our doctors, not our loved ones, not our mentors. Our, our strength is in God alone. And he is all of our sustenance. He is all of our life. He is all of our glory in him alone. The third purpose of our pain, to decrease our love for temporal things and to increase our love for God alone. I think we see this clearly in the response of Job to his sufferings. He says, after all those things came upon him that you read in the first two chapters of Job, he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And maybe you've just gotten to that point and you've stopped. And you've just said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. That's not where Job stopped. Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job blessed the name of the Lord despite losing everything. His his property, his children, his wife, 
told him to curse God and die. And this is his response. Now often it, it does take, unfortunately, great loss for us to realize how much we love temporal things, doesn't it? And, and I'm not just speaking about filthy lucre or bad things, but I'm talking about good things. Good things. Things that we can pray for according to the will of God, yet our hearts yearn for these things above God and His Word. We love them as idols, not as good gifts from a good God. It is really a, a blessing for God that he shakes us in this idolatry to make us realize how much we are finding joy in these things that will perish ultimately and that we need to instead put our love and joy in God alone. And that's the third reason he afflicts us. And we see this in the conclusion of Newton's hymn as well that I, I started this, this afternoon with. He says, he asked God after, after all these things have come upon him, Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? And then it's, it's as if Newton hears God speaking to him through the scriptures in a very personal way. Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. He goes on, these inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free. And here it is. And break your schemes of earthly joy that you may find your all in me. All of these schemes that we have to build joy in temporal things, God shakes them. He says, all, all you have and all you need and all you should want is me. And that's really a blessing. God is using our trials and sufferings to break our schemes of earthly joy. God takes away that our love for him may grow deeper and pure. Remember the words of Job. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Fourth purpose of our pain. To be conformed to the image of his son. And I think this is the end of, of all of them. Maybe you can come up with more. I think this is the end of them all. That we would be conformed to the image of his son. And he says this on the very heels of this verse. In verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. We would be doing wrong if we took Romans 8.28 and we put it on a coffee mug and that was it. And we made that mean whatever we want it to mean for our good. Whatever your imagination of good is, that could be a coffee mug verse. It's not a bad thing to have verses on coffee mugs, but we need to make sure we read the very next verse because this tells us what good is. What is good? It is to be conformed to the image of God's Son. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God is using trials ultimately that we will all be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, our, our Savior who suffered. Paul says in Hebrews that God disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. 
For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And the Apostle Peter also says something similar in his first letter. He says, But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his steps. The ultimate end of all of our suffering in this life is that we would be conformed to the image of our Savior who suffered. He has commanded us to walk in his steps, to lay down our very lives that we may truly live. Whoever loves his life in this world will lose it. Whoever will come after Christ must lay his life down. And this is the fourth precious purpose of our pain. But the reality is that, that when we're in the midst of a trial, in the heat of that trial, in the difficulty of that trial, we cannot always know in that moment exactly what God means for us by this trial. As, the, as another song says, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. We must simply trust that things are not as they appear to be. While we're tempted to fret, to be anxious or fearful, God is in complete control and he is working every detail for our good that we might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Uh, Cooper, William Cooper goes on in the, the song to say, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage, take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. These saints are fearful of this storm that's coming. Maybe you can picture you're out, you're out in a Kansas uh, plane and you see a giant supercell that looks like it's coming right. There's a funnel coming toward your house. The clouds ye so much dread are filled with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. The worst of trials will break with blessings on your head. He continues, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast. If you've watched uh, tomatoes grow up, they turn green, but you wait for a month for them to turn red. You're waiting for the day you can pick those. Well, when we're in the midst of our sufferings, we don't know what's happening. We don't know why it's happening. We may have to wait weeks, months, years to find out why God has brought this into our lives. But he, he says his purposes will ripen fast, soon. They will ripen, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. This requires faith. It requires faith to see good, good where your body feels evil. 
where your senses feel hurt, it takes faith to know that that is for your good. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter. He will make it plain. He will make it plain. As Charles Spurgeon said, God is too good to be unkind and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. His promises toward his people are still true, despite what they feel and are experiencing. So what are some uh, uses of this, that, this, uh, this uh, precious promise? Believer, do you know this as the Apostle Paul knew it? Remember the first words that he says, and we know. And we know. Paul was confident that any difficulty that would come upon this church at Rome would be for their good. Do you have the same faith and confidence that all things will work for your good? If you're currently experiencing trial, pain, and suffering, you need to meditate upon this glorious promise that this trial, this difficulty will work together for your eternal good. If you love God, you should take this as a promise from heaven. This is a checkbook in the bank of faith for your soul. You can stake your life on it. But if you're not suffering at this time, you will. You absolutely will. Suffering will come upon us all because of, uh, this, because of our own sin, because of the sins of others, because of this world that we live in, because of death, the reality of death. We must all face this. Whether we're facing it in this moment, sitting in this chair, we will all certainly face this. And we will need this verse and others like it to survive and thrive in those circumstances. But if you're not suffering at this time, meditate. You should, you should prepare yourself. You should meditate on passages like these. I recommend you meditate on some of these hymns that we've discussed this afternoon. These realities are precious. And when you come to the hour of trial, you want to be prepared with the promises of God that he will sustain you in the most deepest, most difficult and darkest hours of your life, whatever is required of you. But more than that, you should also set yourself and prepare yourself to rejoice in the midst of your trials. This harkens back to the example of Job. And Peter exhorts us in this way in 1 Peter 5. Do not be surprised, beloved, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. And I think Peter is implying there, you should know that this is coming upon you. Because he's already told you earlier in the epistle that you must walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. He's already told you this. So don't think it a surprise when the fiery trial comes upon you. He continues, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And I just think about the example of uh, the apostles when they're whipped, and they count it as joy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. This is, this is possible for any of us when we're beaten by the rods 
of trial and suffering in this life. The same rejoicing is possible for us. Because we're certain that God means our trials and sufferings for good, we can rejoice in the midst of them, any of them. Now, this does not mean that we should not appropriately grieve. We should absolutely grieve in an appropriate manner, in a manner of faith. Uh, But when we grieve, again, we grieve in the spirit of Job. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Christian grief must ultimately end in this expression of faith that, Lord, I don't, I, what I see is, is horrible, but what I know is true. And I am rejoicing in the midst of this, and I am not surprised by it. This also doesn't mean that we should never plead with God to remove the trials and sufferings from us. That, that, is, that is an appropriate thing as well. Uh, we, we look back at the example of Paul when he pleaded with the Lord three times to remove his trial. We don't see the Lord uh, chastising Paul for, for asking to have it removed from him. However, he does, he does say, this is really for your good, and I'm going to let you experience it, Paul. So we, must, we may uh, petition the Lord to remove our trials, but we must do it in a, in a way where we are confident that if God contends, intends for this to continue, we will bear under it with faith and, and, and depending upon his strength and rejoicing in his promise. But believers should never carry their griefs alone. And neither should they just cast their cares only upon loved ones or their doctors or even their pastor alone. God invites believers to cast their cares, not upon all these places that they should cast their cares upon, but on God himself. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. He cares for you. And he invites you to cast your cares upon him, whatever they are, because he cares for you. That that is an incredible promise that the apostle makes there. Lastly, to the unbeliever in this place, to those who are not in Christ, who do not love God and have not been effectually called according to his purpose. You should not take any comfort from this passage that we have been discussing this afternoon. This is not for you. God only works all things together for the good of those who have repented of their sin and who have believed in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. This is only true of those who have been born again. So if you find yourself not to be a recipient of this promise this afternoon, there is still hope for you. The good and kind God has not yet to this hour given you what you deserve. Hallelujah. Amen. Today is still a day of salvation. This very hour is an hour of salvation. Don't let it flee away. Don't let it run away. Repent today and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will deliver you from your sin. And then, and only then, will all things work together for your good. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for this precious promise. Help those who are in the hour of trial 
Give them the strength that they need. Give them the grace that they need to endure it for your sake. We thank you that our trials are not meaningless, that you use them for our good and your glory. For those who are not in trial, I pray that you prepare them well to suffer. For the inevitable suffering they'll face. And for those who are not in Christ, I pray that they would run to you this hour, that you would get glory in this place from saving sinners. May you be glorified in your people and even in this time. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.